We read from the Holy Scriptures this evening from the first epistle of Peter, chapter 1. First Peter, chapter 1. Our text this evening is found in verses 4 and 5 of this chapter. We hear the word of God in first Peter, chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, Yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ, and the glory that should follow. Unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desired to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy." And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which, by the gospel, is preached unto you. Thus far we read from God's holy word. As I said, our text this evening is found in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, where we read, To an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Beloved congregation in our Lord Jesus Christ, we, at least most, if not all of us here, are citizens of the United States of America. We have rights, we have responsibilities, therefore. The Apostle Peter would have us be good citizens here for God's sake. He addresses our calling with regard to the government, the civil authorities in the second chapter of this letter, in verses 13 through 17. But perhaps you've heard of such a thing as dual citizenship. Some countries permit citizens to obtain what is called dual citizenship. When my wife and I lived in Canada, we seriously considered doing that, and yet in the end we never pursued it. But in a sense, we as Christians have a dual citizenship. Certainly, from an earthly perspective, we are citizens of an earthly country. But from a spiritual perspective, our citizenship is in heaven. From a practical point of view, I fear all too often our heavenly citizenship recedes into the background. We are so busy, young and old alike, so preoccupied with our lives here, our relationships, our families, our work, our studies, recreation, and sports, and a host of other things. Our attention is often upon things of this earth and on this earth. Over the last couple years, much concern with regard to pandemic, even with regard to the church, to controversy and troubles within our churches. 
Peter would impress upon us the fact that by grace we are pilgrims here. And if there's anything that motivates us and encourages us in that pilgrim calling here, it's that glorious inheritance that awaits us in that heavenly country. Yes, we are, but pilgrims here. Travelers on our way home. We are such because of God's sovereign decree of election. That's Peter's perspective here. God has sovereignly conceived of his people. They should be strangers for a while in the midst of this present world. He elected them out of the world to be a peculiar possession unto himself in distinction also from others. He chose them in divine and eternal and sovereign love that in them he might manifest his life. By God's grace, we also actually become strangers in this life. More and more, by grace, we are pilgrims and strangers to a world of darkness, to a life of sin, to the things of this present time, so that we do not seek them, we do not set our hearts upon them. We have another life. We have become another people. We are, by grace, through the work of the Spirit of Christ, new creatures in Christ. We are changed into aliens in the world. We are citizens of another country and heavenly. And that country we seek. That's home, is it not? We long and hope for it. And we prize it above all the gold and silver, above all the pleasures and treasures of this world. Do we not? And for it, we live and labor day by day. For it, we strive and suffer. To gain it, we are willing to lose all. Yea, if necessary, our very life by the grace of God. For we have been begotten again unto a lively hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we lift up our heads in hope. We seek the city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we are given encouragement with the hope of that eternal, incorruptible inheritance that fadeth not away. We need that encouragement. We are yet so weak, inclined to be worldly-minded. The world of unbelief and sin around us hates and persecutes God's people. Here we are often in the fiery trials of affliction and hardships and sorrows. Our way here below as Pilgrims and strangers is not easy. 
But still, by grace, we long for the realization of our hope, that unspeakably glorious inheritance is ours. It's reserved in heaven for us. And, thanks be to God, we are preserved by God's power through faith for it. The Apostle Peter describes that inheritance in our text and as God's children, pilgrims and strangers here, it's enough to make us homesick. It's in this light that we consider our text under the theme, Our Certainty of the Glorious Inheritance. And we notice, first of all, that inheritance, secondly, its security, and finally, our preservation. It's very obvious, even from a quick reading of our text, that our heavenly home is not some small, rickety old shack. The other extreme, it's not true either that our home is similar to some of the magnificent mansions in which the rich and the famous of this world may live. The splendor and the glory of our home in heaven is incomparably wonderful and glorious. And the treasures of that home which shall be given to us when we arrive there are treasures which far, far outweigh in value anything we could possibly possess in this world. The Apostle Peter speaks of the blessedness of our heavenly home as an inheritance. And that's very significant. Generally speaking, of course, it's characteristic of an inheritance that it is given by a father to a son. That was eminently true in the history of the nation of Israel in the old dispensation. Families who moved into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua were each given an inheritance by lot in that land flowing with milk and honey. And that inheritance was passed on from generation to generation, from father to son, by law. In fact, it was of essential importance that that law be observed. It was God's will that an inheritance remain in the same family. Think, for example, of Naboth and his vineyard in the days of wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel in the northern kingdom. The wicked king had set his heart on having Naboth's vineyard. By the grace of God, how did he respond to the wicked king? We read in 1 Kings 21 verse 3, And Naboth said to Ahab, 
The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. The Lord forbid it me. Now this earthly symbol and picture is fully realized in the new dispensation. God's people are God's children. They are not that of themselves, of course. It's true of all men what Jesus said to the wicked Jews, ye are of your father the devil, whose works ye do. But God has adopted his people into his own family through the working of the spirit of adoption on the basis of the atoning blood of his own dear son, God has made us his children, his sons and daughters. It's emphasized by Peter in the verse immediately preceding our text. Peter spoke there of the fact that we are begotten again by God. By means of that spiritual rebirth, we are given the life of our Heavenly Father and we are incorporated into his family. That's why Peter speaks of the fact that heaven is an inheritance. What we receive from God is a family inheritance given by our Heavenly Father to us, his children. In addition, it's characteristic of an inheritance that it is freely given. One does not earn an inheritance. An inheritance is not wages for work that's been done or a reward merited for service. An inheritance is simply given because of family relationships which exist. One receives an inheritance because one is a member of the family, generally speaking. No other reason exists. And the importance of this is plain. This inheritance, which is ours, is given to us freely and of sovereign grace. We are incorporated into God's family as his covenant children, as a gift of grace. And we receive the inheritance of heaven which our father has prepared because we are members of his family it's not something we earn it's not payment for works that we've done it's not reward for faithful service it's not wages granted to those who labor it is in the strictest sense possible an inheritance. But what is that inheritance? Well, it's not something material. It's not a matter of money, dollars and cents, or investments, or houses, or farms, or lands. It is a heavenly 
inheritance. And the essence of it all is, in a word, salvation. It ought to be clear immediately that in so much as salvation is the very essence of this inheritance, that we have this inheritance already now. We are saved in this life. And yet the Apostle Peter makes here an important distinction. Our present salvation is only in principle. Yes, our hearts have been regenerated. We have the beginnings of a new obedience, but there is yet much of sin in us. And these bodies are still subject to sickness and disease and death. We face the grim prospect of going to the grave. We are heirs of salvation only in a small measure. So our inheritance is the full and the complete salvation which shall be ours when we go to be with Christ. This salvation includes the full and complete deliverance from sin. Think of that. No more sin. It's this more than anything else that is attractive for us as God's children. Our longing to go to heaven is not so much because in that distant land we're going to walk on streets of gold. Our vision of heaven doesn't consist of floating about on shiny clouds. When all is said and done, the attractiveness of heaven is to be found in the complete freedom from sin. In this world here, it's the burden of our continuous sin which weighs heavily upon us and which brings sighs and cries from our tortured souls. To be delivered from sin is the highest good. According to Revelation 22, verse 3, there shall be no more curse. In the previous chapter, Revelation 21, verse 4, includes the effects of the curse of sin. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. No more sin. And yet that can't be separated, of course, from the positive of the blessedness of fellowship with God. Here in this life, we anxiously lift our faces to the skies. We pray to our Father, whom we cannot see. We often come trembling and fearful into the presence of the Holy God, hiding, as it were, behind Christ our Savior, but 
when we're cleansed at last fully from sin, when we find our rest in heaven, we will be with Christ face to face. We will see in the face of Christ, our Savior God himself, the tabernacle of God shall be with men and he will dwell with them. So this inheritance is blessed covenant fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. And having fellowship with God, we will be with all the saints made perfect ultimately. And with all the holy angels, their happiness and joy shall be complete for sin and suffering and shame and sorrow and death shall be gone, yea, forever. All the blessings of salvation, of which we have but a small taste now, will be ours perfectly, completely, everlastingly. Peter tells us that this inheritance is in heaven. Nevertheless, and scripture itself, when it describes heaven, always uses figurative language. For the realities of heaven are so far beyond our comprehension and imagination that really no earthly language is adequate to convey their glory. There's one thing we can be sure of. When we finally arrive in glory, when we see what heaven is like, we will surely say, as did the Queen of Sheba, when she was awed by the splendor of Solomon's kingdom, stunned by the great glory of his palace, the half has not been told me. So marvelous. The wonder of this inheritance is described in our text in three negative words. Negative words. Notice that. It's because heaven cannot really be described for us in any positive way with the use of positive adjectives. It's too wonderful for that. Really all that Peter and scripture can say is heaven is not like this. It's not like this world. Its treasures are not like the treasures of this world. It's not like anything we would imagine here below, which is the object of our earthly senses. We can have that Sometimes here with regard to earthly things even. That language really doesn't seem to convey it. Perhaps it's when we have attended a certain choir concert, for example. And we find that we find that words simply fail us to convey how beautiful, 
how God-glorifying we found it to be. Words just don't do justice. So it is that Peter describes our inheritance. It is not corruptible. It is not defiled. It never fades away. Everything around us here in this world is corruptible, including ourselves. Death and rot surround us. You may go out to your garden tomorrow and cut some beautiful flowers, put them in a vase, and yet, after a few days, The glory of those flowers is gone. You have to throw them out. All glory fades in this creation. Death reigns. Corruption sets in. Nothing lasts. The Lord Jesus reminds us too that the treasures of this world are of such a kind that moth and rust corrupt them. Thieves break through and steal. Heaven is not like this, and we shall not be like this in heaven. There is no change in the beauty of glory and the blessedness of heaven's treasures. They become, with each passing day, more and more beautiful. For death does not rule there as it does here, and all does not end up in the dust of the earth and is not swallowed up by the chasm of the grave. Nor is there any defilement. For sin shall be gone. Here in this world all is stained. Made unspeakably dirty. By the corruption and filth of sin. All the relationships of life are defiled by sin. All the marvelous inventions of men are so many tools to pursue evil ends. All the arts and culture become filthy with sin. The songs, the paintings, the literature, all of it's defiled by sin. And man leaves, as it were, his bloody fingerprints of his wickedness upon everything. He makes dirty all that he touches. It's a grief. And yet it can be otherwise. But beloved, the inheritance of heaven is not like this. It's freed from all stain and pollution of sin. Nor can our inheritance ever fade away, pass away. It is, in the strict sense of the word, everlasting. This is our inheritance in the home towards which we are pressing on in our pilgrim journey. But, beloved, there's always the question, a very important question, will that inheritance indeed be ours? 
We know that in this life, the matter of inheritance is no sure thing. Suppose a father that has accumulated an estate valued at several million dollars will leave that estate to his son. The son may look forward to the day when that's all going to become his. He may have a great eagerness for that day. He may live, in fact, for that day when he will become heir of all that his father owns. But there are two things that could happen very easily to leave him a very disappointed young man. On the one hand, something could happen to the inheritance. It's possible that through some depression or economic collapse or some calamity, the value of his father's estate disappears entirely. It may be that when the time comes for him to receive the inheritance, that it's worthless. There's really nothing there that's happened before in this world, and no doubt it will happen again. On the other hand, it may also be possible that something happens to this young man himself. He may die before he comes of age, before his father passes away, or he may, through some foolishness, fall from his father's favor and be disinherited, written right out of the will. He may, in carelessness and sin, make himself unworthy of receiving the estate, And when the will is read at his father's decease, he may find to his chagrin and growing anger that his father has left everything to charity or to someone else. That too has happened and will happen again. The Apostle Peter is concerned lest we think that the same thing might happen to us. We might think that something will happen to our inheritance before the time comes to receive it. Or it's conceivable that something might happen to us. That's much more likely, of course. And we're very conscious of the fact that we are yet so frightfully sinful Every day again we commit so many sins that we merit our Father's displeasure. We fall into sin and are constantly unworthy children who of ourselves deserve to be disinherited. And so to comfort us in this respect and to assure us of the certainty of our inheritance, the Apostle directed by the Spirit to add some very important words. On the one hand, Peter tells us that this inheritance is reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved in heaven for you. God will take care of that inheritance. 
he will keep it safely as no earthly father is able to keep it. He will watch over it. He will protect it. He will preserve it carefully so that none of its glory and blessedness is diminished. Before we are taken home, he will guard it with his own sovereign and all-powerful care. Really, of course, the certainty of this inheritance that it will be kept for us is found in the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. This inheritance is earned on the cross and as certain as is the atonement of Christ and his powerful resurrection from the dead, so certain is our inheritance. Jesus, already before his death, can say with utmost certainty, in my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Understand that inheritance was really prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. For in God's sovereign and immutable counsel, that inheritance is prepared from eternity. And his people, the objects of his abundant and eternal mercy, are in that counsel, the possessors of the incorruptible and undefiled inheritance that never fades away. As the Apostle Paul testifies in Romans 8, 29 and 30, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed according to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren, and whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Truly, that which eye hath not seen, and ear hath not heard, and never entered into the heart of man to conceive, God prepared for them that love him from before the foundation of the world. The inheritance eternal is already prepared, reserved in heaven for you. That inheritance is prepared because centrally it's realized in the Lord Jesus Christ. He merited the inheritance for his brethren and we are co-heirs with him only. Rightful heirs we are, not because of any merit or righteousness of our own. On the contrary, we had forfeited everything and were by nature objects of wrath, even as others, sinful and guilty. We could never stand, but we belong to him who is the firstborn among many brethren. He came to take our guilt away, to merit for us the righteousness of God out of pure and everlasting love, his suffering and blood, his death, and perfect answer to God's thou shalt love me 
are the meritorious causes of our being the rightful heirs of the inheritance of eternal glory. On him alone, on his atoning blood, his cross and resurrection alone, our hope is founded. Not only did Christ merit the eternal inheritance for his brethren in the way of his perfect obedience, but that same inheritance is centrally realized in him. And in him, it's reserved in heaven for us who believe on his name. For he was raised from the dead and being raised, He was clothed with glory, the very glory of that incorruptible and undefilable inheritance that never fades away. Into that glory of that inheritance in the highest heavens, Christ was received, and he is filled with the Spirit and with all the gifts of grace necessary to realize for all his brethren that final salvation that is to be revealed in the last time. He is the central realization of the glorious inheritance in heaven. And it is therefore all prepared. And in heaven it is reserved. Reserved for you to whom God has given the power of faith to be engrafted into the Lord Jesus Christ believe on his name and no power of darkness is capable of reaching into that inheritance to destroy its glory and beauty no we cannot yet see that inheritance but by faith we do see Jesus crowned with glory and honor and we know that that inheritance is reserved in heaven for us. It is secure, perfectly secure in Christ. But not only is that inheritance very carefully preserved for us, but we are preserved by God so that we will surely inherit the treasures which God has prepared. We are, as the Apostle Peter testifies, kept by the power of God. We're guarded by God's power. There's quite obviously a figure underlying this language. It's the figure really of a city with high, wide walls, guarded, protected from enemy attacks by the mighty bulwarks surrounding the inhabitants and by a strong army, that city is impregnable, unable to be taken, a mighty fortress. God's power is the protection of his people. We, we are weak, small, feeble, insignificant creatures. Our enemies are many. Enemies who seek our destruction. The devil goes about as a roaring lion 
seeking whom he might devour. The world of sin and unbelief rises up in enmity against us, and not the least of our enemies is our own sinful flesh. But God's power is entirely adequate to preserve and guard us. This is not only because God's power is much greater than the power of all our enemies, so that in any contest we may be sure that God will come out victorious, but rather God's power is so complete, so universal, that it extends also to our enemies. They can do nothing without his will. What comfort in the midst of the evil days in which we are living. In addition, never forget that God's power is the power of wisdom. God knows the best way to prepare his people for and to take them to glory. God knows how all things are able to serve that purpose in the best way. And he causes them to work together for good for his people. And it is the power of love and grace. God loves his people with an eternal love which is fully manifest in the cross. He gave his only begotten son. All things which happen to us come in God's infinite love. And so, beloved, it is the power of the cross itself, the power of that complete and final victory of Jesus Christ over all the forces of sin and death. And God wants us to know and to be fully aware that wondrous salvation, the way to that final and glorious salvation. And therefore the power of God operates in us through faith. Through faith, which is the power as it is the gift of God's grace. Never is it a condition which you must fulfill but it is that power of God that works in our hearts, enabling us to cling in hope to that God of our salvation who will never let us go. And so God preserves not only our inheritance, but also us. And we persevere until we attain our glorious inheritance. That inheritance which is ready to be revealed in the last time. That it's ready to be revealed means that it's already prepared. And that makes it objectively real. And this idea is in harmony with the rest of the text, which emphasizes that the inheritance is reserved in heaven. It's there. That it is to be revealed means that at the present time it's hidden. 
from our view. We might say that it's behind the curtain of the heavenly. This revelation may be compared to the unveiling of a statue. One moment, the statue is hidden under a veil. But when that veil is removed, the thing hidden is suddenly revealed. So our inheritance, our final and glorious salvation, is ready to be unveiled. And what an unveiling that will be. The very thought stirs up within us eager anticipation. That which eye hasn't seen, which ear hasn't heard, nor has it ever entered into the heart of man to conceive is that which God has laid away for those who love him. In a word, no words are to be found that can begin to describe it. Ready to be revealed in the last time. And time here must be understood not from the point of view of it being the succession of minutes, though it's undoubtedly true that there is such a succession of moments at the end of which shall be the last moment of time as we know it. Yet time, according to our text, must not be viewed as we watch it develop on the clock but rather time here must be conceived of as the opportune occasion, the very last event that will occur in time. To that last occasion in history, all other occasions and events are working. The entire eternal counsel of God has as its central and final objective the revelation of this inheritance. And all history is but the unraveling of this plan and counsel of God. And the very last event that fills up this purpose of God is the final and glorious salvation of his people when we shall be united with him in an inseverable bond and abide with him in his glory. Then time as we know it shall cease. Then the counsel of God with regard to history shall be finished. Then all of God's redeemed creation shall enter into and abide in our glorious inheritance that beloved will be glory indeed but until then we watch and we pray we repent we return we fight the battle of faith even unto the end By faith we hope and trust, clinging all the while to the God of our salvation. 
continue our pilgrim journey. And we know that we are not kept in God's power without anything touching us in this pilgrim way in which we walk, but by the power of God working in us and through us by faith. What an inheritance, beloved. Is that the object of your hope? That heavenly inheritance? If not, if all this talk of a heavenly inheritance means nothing to you, if it does not make you a bit homesick, if you have only a a purely carnal hope regarding the here and the now, the word of God says, repent. For the things of this present time surely perish, and all the ungodly shall perish with them. This world is passing away with the lusts thereof. But if through the wonder of God's grace we've received that power of faith, then we too are kept in the power of God. Then we too are kept through faith unto the salvation that is to be revealed to us in the last time. Then we surely experience from day to day the Reality that we are sojourners, pilgrims, strangers here in this world. But we continue on in hope. For that inheritance is safe, kept for us, reserved in heaven for us. And its glory is staggering. Its blessedness is all the object of our hope. The certainty of receiving it is greater than all earthly security. Thanks be to God, the God of our salvation. Amen. Most merciful and gracious Heavenly Father, what marvelous things thou hast made known unto us. What a precious treasure is thy word of truth, the Holy Scriptures. They reveal to us these things of our inheritance, of heaven, of glory, of the fullness of our salvation. Our puny minds are overwhelmed. We cannot comprehend it all. By the working of thy spirit, we believe and we go forward in hope, a hope that will never make us ashamed. So be with us in all our pilgrim way. Pardon the sins that cleave unto us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.